I strongly encourage you to take out your Bible this morning, opening to the book of Revelation. And I encourage you a little bit differently this morning. If you have a pen, it may be helpful to pull out your pen so you may want to mark some things this morning as we uh, continue this morning in the book of Revelation. So a Bible, and if you have a pen handy, you might find that helpful. In his classic book entitled Holiness, J.C. Ryle has a chapter entitled Lovest Thou Me? And in that chapter, Ryle writes this, Please hear this. Please pay attention to this. Life or death, heaven or hell, depend on our ability to answer one simple question. Do you love Christ? Did you hear that? That's not unfamiliar to us. That has been for several years now. Our our preaching of the gospel here, that love to Jesus, looking to Jesus, loving Jesus is the gospel. Anything less than that is not the gospel. Anything you try to add to that that takes away from love to Jesus is not the gospel. Let me read it again. Life or death, heaven or hell, depend, they hang in the balance on our ability to answer this simple question, do you love Christ? And just so that there's no confusion, Ryle goes on to explain a true Christian is not a beer as not a mere baptized man or woman he's something more he's not a person who goes as a matter of form to church on Sundays and then lives all the rest of the week as though god is unimportant to him formality is not christianity ignorant lip worship is not true worship the scripture speaks expressly they are not all israel which are of Israel in Romans chapter 9. The practical lesson of those words is clear and plain. All are not true Christians who are members of the visible church. The true Christian is the one whose religion is in his heart and life. It is felt by him in his heart. There is one thing in a true Christian which is eminently peculiar to him, and that one thing is love to Jesus. And then Ryle provides a list of peculiar marks by which love to Christ makes itself known. Because it's very easy to sit back here on a Sunday morning and say, oh yes, I love Jesus. Well then here's some tests. Ryle says, number one, if we love Christ, we will think often about Him. Christ is often present in the believer's thoughts. We we think often of his name, his character, his deeds. We think about all that he's done to save us, all that he is doing, all that he still will do. Ephesians 3.17 says Christ dwells in the Christian's heart. True Christians think much and deeply about Christ. Number two, if we love Christ, we want to hear about Christ. The believer finds pleasure in listening to those who talk about Christ. True Christians most enjoy sermons that are full of Christ, and they enjoy the company of those who speak much of Christ. In fact, the disciples on the road to Emmaus said in Luke 24, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? 
The true Christian thinks much about Christ. The true Christian wants to hear about Christ. And then thirdly, for our purposes this morning, if we love Christ, we will read about Christ. The true Christian delights in the Scriptures because they speak of Christ, their beloved. It's not wearisome to read a letter from a loved one. And the Lord Jesus declared, you search the Scriptures because... They bear witness about me. You see, the Christian cannot be happy without reading the Bible. Why? Ryle says it's because scriptures testify of him of whom their soul loves. Can you say you love somebody that you don't want to spend any time with? We've just sung a trilogy of songs this morning. One confessing, Jesus, we love you ever adore you. And I pray that you can sing that from a genuine heart this morning and that it's not, in Ryle's words, just lip service. We also sang a song just now, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. This is my earnest plea, more love to thee. Why? Why would, why would anyone sing a song like that? Because we love you, but you're worthy of more. We want to love you more. We want to know you more. And the way we love Christ more is that song in the middle. Be thou my vision. As you see Him, as you look to Him, as you gaze upon the fullness of who Christ is, the believing heart, the heart that's been given by the Spirit of God, what Jesus said to Nicodemus, the heart that is born from above, will behold Jesus and love Him and earnestly desire to love Him more. Well, earnestly desire, I want to think more about you. I want to hear more about you. I want to read more about you. I pray that's your heart this morning. I can tell you, if that's not your heart this morning, the rest of the sermon will really make no sense to you. You will be so bored I have a 22-point message for you this morning. I'm looking at your faces. You know how most of my three-point sermons go, don't you? I have a 22-point sermon for you this morning. And it is all about Jesus. And if in the course of events this morning you find your mind and your soul drifting away, it's not me. And it's not the Word of God. There's a heart that's not loving Jesus enough. This morning, we're closing out the book of Revelation, and my earnest prayer has been that we would not waste this study of this book. The book of Revelation has been a book about Jesus Christ. My singular object in this series of messages was not to upset you because I don't hold to your eschatological view. I've done some of that. We have people who are not here this morning, and that is a contributing reason. That was never my intention. My intention, my sole intention, has been to uphold Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. The theme, the message, the central thing of the book of Revelation is Jesus.
in our opening sermon to this series going back over a year ago. We took time to consider how Jesus is the central figure of the whole of the Bible. In that message, we looked at in the whole of the Old Testament, it's all about Jesus. Though he hasn't been born yet, though he's not come around yet, Jesus is the central figure. We're seeing some of that in some of our kids' time each Lord's Day as we read some of those Old Testament stories. But in Luke chapter 24, when the resurrected Jesus encountered those two followers on the road to Emmaus, we're told in chapter 24, verse 27, beginning with Moses and the prophets. What, what is he talking about? That's the Old Testament. Beginning in the Old Testament, because there was no New Testament at that time. Beginning with Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the books of Moses. He, that's Christ, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning, can you finish it? himself he he opens up the bible and he preaches his glory from genesis exodus leviticus numbers and all the old testament to which they themselves find themselves did not our hearts burn within us when he was teaching us it was all about jesus when we get to the new testament all of the blessings and promises of god find their amen in jesus it's all about jesus all the love, the mercy of grace of God is in Jesus Christ. All revelation and knowledge of the triune God is in Jesus Christ. It's the purpose of God from Genesis to Revelation that in all things, that's creation, that is in providence, that is in redemption, and that is in every book of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, that in all things Christ would have preeminence, that Christ would be exalted. And what we saw in that very first message, if, if that is the heartbeat of God, that Christ would be central of all, why would it be any different when we come to the book of Revelation? Why would the takeaway from the book of Revelation be anything other than love for Jesus, knowing Jesus in his ascended, enthroned, sovereign rule and reign over all things for the good of the believer and for the Father's glory? The last book of the Bible informs us that this is what it's about in chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean it's the revelation given from Jesus Christ. It is. But it's from the God to the Son to the angel to John to the church. The idea there, the re it's the revelation about Jesus Christ about who he is, about what he's presently doing right now, having risen from the dead, ascended through the skies to there. It's the revelation about what is going on now. It's pulling back the veil so we can see our king as he is. And it's all about him. And the vision is given as a means of grace to you and I. I've told you from the beginning my conviction, and I, I can say it now at the end of the sermon series with more conviction than I did at the beginning. The book of Revelation is the most practical book in the whole, for the church in the whole of the Bible. It just is. It's not the only book you need. We need the fullness of it. But it is the most practical. It is God's word, God's shepherding letter to his churches in the church age struggling with persecution and tribulation and all kinds of, of, of temptation to drift away from. This is God's own message to us about Jesus Christ. 
about who he is, about what he's doing, about his victory over the dragon, over the dragon's helpers. And it's given as an encouragement to us to strengthen us. Isn't that what we prayed this morning in our prayer meeting? That for your glory, strengthen us according to Christ Jesus. That is the book of Revelation. Strengthen us according to Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done. Oh God, show us our king. That we might be comforted, that we might find hope, that we might see things, not with our physical eyes, the way they're portrayed around us or on the news or the way people tell us, but we may see with the eyes of faith. And see through Jesus Christ and His rule and His reign over all things. Do you see why Satan and uh, the world and even our flesh wants to take the book of Revelation and twist it and conform it to something that it's not? Anything. Let's, 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 Let's make it about anything it could be. Let's create crazy imaginative things just so long as the church never sees what it most needs to see what God intends them to see Jesus Christ and he's done it the truth is our enemy if he can't just make the book of Revelation just flat out disappear from the canon of scripture which he can't do just rip it out of the Bible let's do everything we can to confuse and complicate and make it controversial, and create such divisiveness and disagreement so we never get to Jesus Christ. Oh, and how Satan has done it. And the church is the far worse for it. Well, we've made our way through the entirety of the book. And this is my final effort to you to try to make this book as honoring to Jesus Christ and to take this most practical book of the Bible and make it as useful to you going forward as it can be. I want, with God's help, to help us to one more time to see and to know Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation, that we might go forth from here today and not leave here, thank goodness he's done with Revelation. I was so tired of that but that we would walk away. How did I ever live without spending days of every month, days of every week, maybe hours of every day, seeking out some aspect of Christ in that book? And going forward, Revelation will be a mainstay in my service to the Lord. goal this morning is to give you some things to to live upon, truths that you will return to again and again and again. I want you to know the Christ of Revelation. That's the title of the message this morning, Knowing the Christ of the Book of Revelation. Knowing the Christ of the Book of Revelation. And I have intentionally chosen that word knowing. Some of you, in fact, in this room, we are nearly finished with a a, a, a book we've been reading, we spent two years going through. There's about six of us in this room looking unto Jesus. We're nearing the end of it. And by Isaac Ambrose. And in this book, Ambrose, to help us to see and to know Jesus Christ, he follows a formula. 
And the formula is, it's a nine-step formula. We want to know Jesus in certain aspect of, of Scripture. This book takes us through the whole of Scripture, from eternity past into eternity future. And we want to, nine things to do to Jesus. And knowing Je- One is to know Jesus, and that's the foundation. And then from there, the believer is to consider Jesus. And from there, to desire Jesus in that regard. And from there, to hope in Jesus in that regard, and from there to rejoice in Jesus in that regard, and from there to love Jesus in that regard, and then to uh, call on Jesus in prayer and in worship in that regard, and then finally having gazed upon Christ so vividly to be conformed to Jesus in that regard, that we would become like the Jesus we behold there. There's a nine-step, and my hope is that as you cling to the book of Revelation going forward, you will take, we're just going to take that base level, knowing Jesus. I want to point out some things to you this morning and that you will take this and you will take these verses we look at and I hope you'll mark in your Bible this morning and you will do the work of considering, of meditating upon these passages, going back and reading them prayerfully, meditating upon them and then desiring Jesus in that way, and hoping in Jesus, and believing on Jesus in that way, and loving Him, and rejoicing on, and calling on Him, and conforming your life to who this Jesus is. So my task this morning is to help you know the Christ of the book of Revelation. 22 points this morning. We better get started. Number one, turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Some of the clear passage. These 22 that we're looking at this morning are not the only ones. I just want to stimulate your thinking. I want to stimulate your eyes of faith to see what Revelation is about, where Christ is revealing to us himself. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5, here we see Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. To those who love Jesus, look unto Jesus as the faithful witness. We read there in verse 5, And from Jesus, the faithful witness. This title here, the faithful witness. Jesus is the, 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 he fulfills the prophetic office. He's the one whom Moses talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses says, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. That's Deuteronomy 18. Moses promising there's going to become a prophet After me, he's the one you should listen to. You can fast forward to John's gospel, chapter 6, and there Jesus identifies himself. The one Moses was talking about, I'm here. It's me. Christ is the prophet sent by God, the witness sent, the faithful witness. And what's the job of a witness? It is to bear witness to truth, the truth about God. Jesus Christ comes to the world with true knowledge about God, about who he is. He was able to bear witness about what he had seen about God throughout eternity, what he knew about God, what he knew about God's plans and purposes. And John uses this title of the faithful witness, get this, some over 70 times in his writings to refer to Jesus. John 18, 37, Jesus says, To this end I was born, and for this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. That's what, that's what Revelation is revealing. Our king on the throne, he's the witness of God, to God, of God's purposes, of God's plans. He's executing God's plan because he's the faithful witness. Jesus is the faithful witness. 
Are you living upon Him as such? We cannot be satisfied with some static view of Jesus from the pages of the Bible that he, it doesn't bear any reality upon our lives. Are you living upon Him as such? Are you ever tempted to doubt God? Do you ever find yourself questioning God, questioning God's purposes, questioning His sovereignty? Well, then more than anything, what do you need? You don't need a lesson in apologetics. You need to look to Jesus who is the faithful witness. If you ever doubt, you're not looking at Jesus clear enough. You're not seeing Him. He is the faithful witness. Look unto Him. Number two, stay in that same verse, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. I hope you'll mark this. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. What is that talking about? Christ is the inaugurator of a new creation. And he accomplishes it by his resurrection. If he's the firstborn of the dead, just logically it means, number one, he had to have died. Right? Which he did upon the cross. This Friday, Good Friday, we'll be remembering the death of Jesus Christ where he came, lived the life we should have lived, and died the death we deserve to die. But he rose again, didn't he? That's what next Sunday's about as we celebrate Easter Sunday. He rose from the dead. And when he rose, his resurrection established a kingdom. A new kingdom. A kingdom for which now death and sin and the world had no bearing on it. It could not conquer. Those things were conquered by this kingdom. And Jesus Christ, as the firstborn of the dead, is the prototype, the pattern of all of God's people who, will, like Jesus, will die, but will be raised again into a new life, a new kingdom. We have hope of eternal life, free from sin, free from sorrow, because of Jesus Christ. And because of his resurrection, he is the firstborn of the dead. Are you struggling with your own mortality this morning? Do you find your body is physically weakening and maybe for the first time or more so you're thinking about death? Do you fear what death may do to you? What about the world? What the world may do to you because of your love to Jesus? That was what was happening in the first century. If fear grips our soul in the face of death, we're not looking at Jesus Christ, the firstborn of the dead. We're not looking at our prototype, who by grace, as he rose from the dead, so too will we. That's why Paul can pray, well, whether I live or whether I die. Doesn't matter. I prefer to die. I don't even care because I get to be where Jesus is. Death doesn't scare me. Why? Because Christ Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Do you see how this vision of Christ is a comfort to believers who may lose their lives because of their faithfulness to Jesus? He's the firstborn of the dead. And as he died and rose again, so too will you. Number three. Stay there in verse five. Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth the ruler of the kings of the world. By virtue of his finished work of redemption upon the cross, Christ and his resurrection, Christ has been made king of the universe. He's, he's been given that by the Father. And now, as the ruler of kings, looking at Jesus, now all authorities, all rulers, all kings, all everyone is under the rule and authority of King Jesus. You've got to grasp that. 
You've got to, we have got to look out into the world and we see all that's going on. We've got to see it through the lens of what Revelation has taught us. All of it is under His authority. All of Christ's enemies, all of our enemies, they serve Him. Yes, the kings of the earth may have crowns. It's because Jesus Christ gave it to them for His purposes. It's not because they have claimed to that crown on their own. And bank on this. One day, every king, like everyone else, will bow before the throne and glorify Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. You ever find your heart filled with fear when you watch the news, when you see what's going on in the world? Things have never been worse than they are today. Oh, I I fear for my children and grandchildren in the world that they're going to grow up in. We all understand that sentiment. But we must also understand that those words come out of a heart that is not looking at Jesus Christ as the ruler of kings. That everything that is happening, no argument here, there's bad things. But our king is in complete control of it. He's the king. And everything we see here in a way we may not know for, for till the future is serving His purposes for His glory and the joy of His people. Number four, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, going into verse 6. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom and priest to His God. Number four, Christ is Him who loved us. He loved us. Why? Listen, I look around, you're a bunch of good people, better than me. But none of us are good enough to be loved by a holy God. And yet we're told that his love for his people is an eternal, immutable, unchanging, everlasting love. Because he has loved us back in eternity past, when he knew everything about us, he chose to love us. Just his grace, his goodness, his mercy, he did that. And He provided everything that's necessary to make us what we must be for Him to love us. And that He did through Jesus Christ. Christ was, excuse me, our our surety, if you will, in the covenant of grace. Christ was the promise that He would come and for the glory of the Father, for His love for us, would do everything that the Father needed to take place so that He could love us with this everlasting love. And therefore, in the fullness of time, Christ did come. He died, and in his death, he washed us from our sins in his blood. He washed away our sins. He washed away our record of wrongs from heaven. He washed us from our sins, making us holy and righteous before God. The death of Jesus Christ did this. It did away with our condemnation. It did away with our eternal damnation. And the death of Christ did everything that's necessary to wash our sins away and to free us from sin's power. That's the work of Christ. The work of Christ in redemption. You can't read Revelation 1, 5, and 6 and not echo the song we opened up with this morning. To God be the glory, great things He hath done. He hath done through His Son, Jesus. Because all whom he loves, he's washed 
and made them, as verse 6 goes on to say, kings, priests to his God. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. You ever find yourself struggling with sin? You ever find yourself struggling, just feeling, man, there's just one sin or two sins, or I just can't overcome them? No matter how hard I try, it just doesn't go away. There's a root sin of pride, of unbelief. There's something there. Of course you do. Everybody does. You struggle with assurance of salvation. Everybody does. Here's why. In that moment, you're not looking at Jesus Christ. You're looking at yourself. You're not looking at Him who loved us. You're not looking at Him who through His blood washed away all of our sins. It is impossible in that moment of gazing at Jesus Christ when He says it is finished, it is done, and for the glory of the Father, His love for us, this is what He's done to question and doubt and and to say that I can't overcome this sin. That renders sin powerless. That is how salvation is accomplished. It is, we're not looking at Jesus in this regard, knowing Jesus as the one who loves us and the one who has done everything necessary to save us. Number five, Jesus is in John chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Jesus is the first and the last. Fear not, he says. I am the first and the last. Jesus is attributing to himself there the very words that God used of himself in the book of Isaiah. So why is Jesus using them here? He's declaring to his church, I on the throne am God. I am divine. I am sovereign. I am the ruler. I am the Lord over all. Do you ever doubt who Jesus is? Don't give your Sunday school answer here this morning. No, 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 of course not. I, I know who Jesus is. Maybe you're more sanctified than the rest of us, but likely, likely we all go through seasons where in a moment we question who Jesus is. That was what was happening in Jesus' own day. Jesus is a good moral teacher. Jesus is a good model citizen. He's an example of true virtue. But what got Jesus put on the cross was when he declared himself to be God. That was blasphemous. And likewise, we too find ourselves, I was having a conversation, I think it was Brother Larry a couple weeks ago came, is it possible to to commit idolatry with Jesus Christ by focusing only upon his humanity? And I had to think about that question for a moment, and it came to my mind again, absolutely it's, it's possible to commit idolatry against Jesus by focusing only upon his humanity, because he is the God-man, completely God. He is deity. And when we struggle in our love for Jesus, maybe we're not gazing deeply enough upon the one that we're looking at. He wasn't just a good man, not just a good teacher, not just an example. He is the radiance of the fullness of God. When I look into his face, I see the face of the Father. Jesus goes on in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus says, I am the living one. Number six, Christ 
seeing Christ in Revelation as the living one. He's talking about himself again, the one who died but didn't stay in the grave. He rose again. He's alive forevermore. And we're not just looking at a static truth that he rose. Why did he raise from the dead? Number one, we're told in Hebrews, he now lives to make intercession for us. So it's not just that he lives and rose from the dead. It's that he lives to what? Make intercession for us. Meaning when we sin, the fa- Christ is at the Father's right hand advocating for you and I. His blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. He's interceding on our behalf. He lives, Hebrews, excuse me, John chapter 17 says, He lives now to give eternal life to His redeemed ones. And because He lives, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, we too, as He lived rising from the dead, so too will we rise from the dead. He lives as the first fruits, but He lives to complete our redemption. The work of redemption wasn't finished when He rose from the grave. The work of atonement, which is a piece of redemption, was accomplished. The work of redemption goes on until we are redeemed and standing face to face with Jesus. The work of redemption is an eternal gospel in eternity past and even right now and until we are standing face to face with Jesus Christ. We need an interceder, an advocate before the Father who is constantly bringing His blood before the Father on our behalf. So if you find yourself again really struggling with sin and how could God love me? I would contend to you, the book of Revelation would be a great help. Turn to Revelation chapter 1, the living one. And why is he alive? Because he's interceding for you, if you're a true believer, to those who love him. Number seven, in Revelation 1, 18, our glorious King Jesus holds the keys of death in Hades. The Lord Jesus Christ, by virtue of his resurrection, has been given all power and authority over all things, including hell, including death. His victory over death gave him the authority over it, the keys over it. His victory over the grave gave him authority over the grave, the keys to the grave. His victory over Satan gave him Authority, keys, if you will, over Satan. That's why he's bound today. Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, all things have now been given over to him. And now, what what do we have to fear? What do we have? If we find ourselves fearing hell, fearing death, fearing the world, we're not looking cleanly at Jesus Christ who's right here in Revelation 1 dangling the key saying oh church oh church what what is the world going to do to you I have the key what's the worst they can do to you kill you I have the keys to it if you die I'm the one who killed you I'm the one who ordained what took place for my glory and for your good because guess what to be absent from the bodies to be present with me Do you see how this is a comfort to a a church that's struggling, that's in in tribulation, that's facing persecution, to see Christ 
victorious over the grave, over hell, over death, holding the keys, saying, it has no power. It is not doing whatever it wants to do. It serves me. If someone dies, it's because I ordained it. And what's true of physical death is also true spiritually. Just as Christ is control over our, spiritual, our physical life and death, so too Christ is in control of our spiritual life and death. Regeneration. His victory over the grave is His victory over a, a tomb, a darkened soul, a dead tomb in our heart. He brings new life in. He has the keys over death and Hades, physically and spiritually. We've only gotten into chapter 1. Chapter 2, verse 1, number 8. Seeing Christ as the one who holds the stars. Chapter 2, verse 1. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, chapter 2 is the introduction to the seven letters. But before we get, there's this picture of Jesus here. And what's he doing here? He's walking among these golden lampstands. You may remember, what's he, what are the lampstands? That's the gathered people of God. Those are the, the local churches gathering together. Christ is walking in the midst of the church at Ephesus, the church at Laodicea, the church at Thyatira, Covenant Life Church. Christ is walking here this morning. The seven stars are the pastors, the messengers of God who, who preach Christ, who, who point people to Jesus Christ. And the image here is of Christ who is present with His people when they gather. And when He comes, if you continue through the seven letters, He's looking for something. He's not just visiting us this morning as a distant observer. He's not just standing back here over at a distance kind of seeing, let me just kind of see what's going on in general here. What is happening as He goes through the seven churches? He's able to pinpoint, in this heart I found idolatry. And when I came to this heart, I found a heart that just wasn't paying attention, that was indifferent to me. And when I came to this heart, I found a heart that, that was compromising. Their worship, they were honoring me with their lips, but their heart was far from me. The picture here of Jesus Christ is one who, this is His church. He bought it. It belongs to Him. He expects it to all be about Him. Now, who needs this vision? Every one of us. Because aren't we all tempted to one degree or another to want to make the church about me? and what I think it should be, and what I want, and what I want to taste when I get there, and the flavor I want. Yet every time we gather, Christ says, your responsibility is to me. Pray to me. Sing to me. The message that's preached better point to me. I'm in your midst. And I demand about me maybe you're in a season where you're really struggling you know making the church what you think it should be or just you're not looking at Jesus clearly enough I've been there too not looking at Jesus clearly enough to understand it's his and it's what he says and he has the right to seek what he's looking for Revelation chapter 5 we come to number 9 after the letters to the seven churches were shown the throne, there's God with the scroll. No one can go and get the scroll. No one is worthy except for one. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Why are they weeping? Because no one's worthy to go and get the scroll. God's scroll. His eternal plans and purposes and execute them. 
And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Everyone was weeping until they saw the lion. Christ. He's the one who's worthy to take the scroll, to execute the scroll. And what is that scroll? It's the, uh, the, the providential affairs of God throughout time. It's, it's his history, if you will. It's his story. It's his purposes. The line of the tribe of Judah is the one worthy to come and take it. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, was from the tribe of Judah. And here, this one from Judah is made comparable to a lion. Jesus Christ on his throne and revelation. Is strong and courageous. He devours his enemies. And like a lion, always prevails. Jesus in his life and death pounced on his enemies and destroyed every one of them. He prevailed with God as our advocate, as our substitute upon the cross. He prevails over the hearts of God's people from eternity past, saving them by grace. You ever find yourself struggling whether Christ is enough? Do you find yourself struggling? Is the atoning work of Christ enough? Might I also need to at least add a little bit of works, a little bit of morality, a little bit of good goodness, a little bit of kindness? Do I need to add a little something to it? You're not looking at Jesus clearly enough. Did the lion of the tribe of Judah prevail over sin, death, the world, or did he not? The answer is clearly he did. We will see that clearly next Sunday on Easter Sunday when he rose from the grave in victory over them all. He did. So if in that moment you feel the need to add to the work of Jesus, you're not looking at Jesus clearly enough. Your Jesus is not ferocious enough. Your Jesus was not big enough to prevail over Every one of your enemies. And so you are trying to supplement Christ with something else, which is no gospel whatsoever. Paul writes to the church at Galatia, you've created a gospel which is no gospel whatsoever because the gospel is Jesus Christ alone. If we find ourselves struggling, feeling the temptation to need to add, let it be, we need this vision of Christ in Revelation. We're also told here in verse 5, He's the line of the tribe of Judah. Number 10, he's the root of David. The root of David. Later on in chapter 22, he's called the root and offspring of David. What does that mean? It's just simply drawing attention that in the Old Testament, there's a line that starts in Abraham's family, right? The Messiah is coming through Abraham's family. And that you follow that trail all the way through, you're going to find it in David. Jesus, when you read the uh, genealogies and the Gospels, he comes from the line of David. Jesus is David's son. He's in that family line. He's the root of David. But here's what's marvelous about that. He's not only the son of David, he's also the God of David. And that's what's significant about this title, the root of David. It goes back to the Old Testament. That Jesus is both the son of David and the God of David. Drawing attention to his deity, he's divine. He's the God-man. Just a fuller picture of the wonder of who Christ is. Number 11, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus is the lamb on the throne. The 
elders look and they see a lamb standing in chapter 5 or 6 as though it had been slain. This lamb, slain lamb, is the visual appearance of Jesus Christ. In the midst of the throne is a lamb who was slain. (laughs) I mean, think of all the possibilities of what that vision could have been. On the throne, I saw a conquering warrior. I saw a muscle-bound warrior that no one would want to mess with. But instead, a slain lamb. And why is he slain? Why is he slaughtered? Who did that to him? It wasn't the men who put him on the cross. It was the father. It was the father who slaughtered his son, who slaughtered this lamb. And and this picture of Christ slaughtered by the father is a is a constant, unforgettable, preeminent image all throughout the book of Revelation. Over and over when you see the the living creatures and everyone bowing before Christ and worshiping Him, over and over they're bowing before a slaughtered lamb. And if that's happening there, beloved, what else would we be worshiping here? If there's nothing better for them to worship there, what else, what in the world else would we turn our attention to here but the slaughtered lamb, Jesus Christ, His person and work. Do you find yourself struggling, to tempted to worship something else, to drift towards another idol? Look at what they're worshiping over and over and over, the angels, perpetually in the book of Revelation. It's Jesus Christ, the Lamb on the throne. If you find your heart worshiping something else, you can count on it, just like me, we're not looking at clearly enough at Christ and seeing Him for who He is. Number 12, in chapter 10, we see Jesus is the mighty angel come down from heaven. And in this imagery of a mighty angel come down from heaven, it is the, the, the descriptions that's used of Him that make it clear that this is Jesus Christ. He's clothed with a crowd, excuse me, clothed with a cloud and a rainbow crowning his head. Just like clouds block the radiance of the sun on a cloudy day. You can't look at the sun, you'd be blinded. Clouds block the radiance. So too, the radiance of the fullness of God's glory revealed in Jesus Christ is is veiled by these clouds. And the the rainbow is an emblem of God's own faithfulness, His covenant-keeping faithfulness. And this angel, his face is like the sun, his feet is like pillars of fire. This one is majestic in beauty. This is no ordinary angel. This is Jesus Christ who's coming, his his foot on the sea, his other foot on the land. What's he saying? He owns it all. It's his. It belongs to him. And when this angel roars, you can go and look at the passage, chapter 10, everyone responds. This one rules and conquers, and when this one speaks, things respond. If you find in your own heart that you're not responding to Christ, to His Word, you're not seeking Him and responding to His voice, which can be found on every page of the Bible, you can count on it. You don't have a big enough view of Jesus of this one that in Revelation chapter 10 they saw and they had sense enough to know when this one roars, you listen and obey. Are you finding obedience difficult? You're not looking at the king. 
Number 13, in Revelation chapter 13, number 13, Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We've already seen the slain part, but from the foundation of the world. Going into eternity past, this was always God's plan of salvation for His glory and for the grace and mercy to His people. Salvation is the wisdom and power of God from eternity past. You know, we live in a day today where People would like to advocate there's more than one way to God. There's more than one way. That you can get to God through good works, religion, morality. He's the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world, meaning this was the only plan. This was the plan of salvation. You ever find yourself, when you think about standing before God, do you find yourself hoping in something other than Christ? You find yourself hoping in your good works, your morality, your church attendance, your just general goodness. Know in that moment, you've not looked deep enough at Jesus Christ to know that is God's plan of salvation. That is where your hope lies. And in Him is everything you need. Now, yes, we want to live upon that, And live a life of conformity to him, which is produced by looking unto him. But our hope is never in what we do. Our hope is in the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. God's plan A, there is no plan B. Number 14. In Revelation chapter 19, Jesus is called the faithful and the true. There's an echo here of what we saw in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 19, Jesus is called the faithful and true. This is chapter 19 is where Jesus is executing judgment upon the dragon and upon his partners. And he comes riding on a white horse. And among the titles is qualifications to execute this judgment. He's the faithful and true. He's been faithful to God. He's been faithful to the people of God. He's been faithful to what God intends. And now what's about to happen? He's faithful to God. He's been true, a true savior, a true warrior, a true friend, a true brother, a true husband. All of these are imagery we see of Jesus throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament. Nothing Jesus does is deceiving. Nothing Jesus does is misleading. Nothing Jesus does is crooked. Christ is inherently faithful and true. You remember what Satan's temptation of Eve was in the Garden of Eden? To question God. To question, did God really say? To question God's goodness, to question His integrity. To question, and do you ever find in your own heart, you yourself questioning God's integrity? God, you've said this, you've promised this, but here's what I'm experiencing right now. You lied. And you find your, your, your heart beginning to drift and to doubt and to question in that moment. And we have all been there. You're lying to yourself if you say you haven't. In that moment where we are questioning the integrity of God in Christ Jesus, the issue is we have taken our eyes off of Christ who is faithful and true. He can be no other. So when we have a promise of our king and our, and our experience isn't lining up with it, the problem is never Jesus. 
in some way that we don't understand. This will work out and he will reveal himself to be faithful and true. But in that moment, it is never ours to like what happened in the Garden of Eden, to question and doubt. It is, Lord, I don't see, I don't understand. Help my unbelief. This I know. As I look at you, I, I, I keep coming to Revelation chapter 19 over and over and over again. You are the faithful and true. This is what I believe, not my experiences. This is what I cling to. This is who you are. You see how you and I need the book of Revelation. This cannot go away just because we finished this sermon series. Number 16, there in Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. An echo of what we saw, his, his kingship, his rule in chapter 1 over all things. Are there other kings and monarchs and authorities in place in the world? Yes. But do any of them supersede him? Never. In fact, they serve his purposes. Number 17 in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. We read these words. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Jesus is the one in whom there will be no more tears. Impossible, as it may sometimes seem for us to imagine, there is this time, the faithful and true says, when there will be no more weeping, no more tears. Why? Sin's gone, death is gone, sorrow's gone. So what's left? Jesus. Great answer. All that's left is Jesus. By now, I hope you're at least familiar with it. Your heart still may be wrestling with it. But what makes heaven heaven? is Jesus. In his presence, the one who has conquered all these other things, what you have left is him. What is it that captivates you? Why do you want heaven? Only you can fill that answer in. We've asked that question numerous times in this sermon series. Why do you want heaven? If the answer is anything other than Jesus, you're not looking at Jesus. This past week, like I said, our, our group that's been going through this was reading a section here on the very thing we're, we're talking about this morning. And this was Ambrose considering Jesus as the centerpiece of heaven. He says this, Christ as God is the very top of heaven's joy. Christ is all in all. Christ is the center of heaven's happiness. Christ is the wellspring that fills the capacities of saints and angels. And we spent some time this past Wednesday night talking. You and I are a wellspring. of We're trying to fill this wellspring with all kinds of desires, things that we want. And the world is offering us all kinds of things. And then when we get it, we realize we're not happy with it. We need something else, right? But here, this picture, Christ is the one who fills the capacity of saints and angels. Christ is the object of happiness itself. There is as much happiness in Christ as happiness exists. Wherever belongs to glory is in Christ. In Him dwelleth all the fullness. Whatever excellency is in heaven, it is in Christ. Not only in perfection, but connection. For all those excellencies meet together and rest in Jesus Christ. Christ is all good things to all His saints in heaven. 
He is beauty to their eyes. He is music to the ears. He is honey to their mouths. He is perfume to their nostrils. He is health to their bodies. He is joy to their souls. He is light to their understandings. He is content to their wills. He is time without sliding, society without loathing, desire without fainting. The Alpha and Omega, the beginning and end, wanting both, needing neither, yet the author of them all he is all in all, to which a true believer reads that and says, my goodness, I could never put it in those words, but yes, that is what Jesus is. And if your soul can't think of heaven in those terms, brothers and sisters, we need the book of Revelation. We are not seeing Jesus clearly enough. If we have not seen him and said, oh my goodness, he is what I must have, and we are wasting these visions that are here. Number 18, in Revelation 21, Christ is the one who makes all things new. Jesus declares in verses 5 and 6, Behold, I, Jesus says, am making all things new. This he's begun in the new birth. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. The old are passed away. Behold, all things are becoming new. And in eternity... It's the new heaven, the new earth. No sorrow, no death, just Christ. When you think about heaven, is it Christ? Number 19, in Revelation 22, he's the Alpha and the Omega. Chapter 22, verse 13, Christ is the Alpha and Omega. The first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last. The first of creation and the last. It's a merism. He's the beginning, the end, and everything in between. It's just another way of saying he's all. Christ here says he's all. That's been God's heart. To the Father, Christ is all. In creation, Christ is all. All the events of providence are for the glory of God in Christ Jesus. All of Scripture is about Jesus. And in the salvation of God's elect, it's all about this. What Paul writes in Philippians, that in everything Christ would be preeminent. Do you find in your soul this morning Christ is preeminent to this degree? I'm going to confess to you it's a struggle for me. So what do we need? We need the book of Revelation. We need this vision of Jesus, exalted, sovereign, ruling, reigning, making all things new. The all in all, the Alpha and Omega. And when my eyes are constantly gazed and fixed upon Him through the Word, nothing else can compare. Number 20, in Revelation 22, Christ is the bright and morning star. He's the light that shines in darkness. He's the light that shines in the darkness of our soul to give us the light of the glory of God. He's the day star, the son of righteousness. Number 21. In Revelation 22, we read verse 20. Surely I'm coming soon. Jesus is the one who's coming soon. Now you say, well, he's been promising that for 2,000 years. We need to qualify that word soon. But again, the church age, 
the church age here, everything is being executed according to the purposes of God. And as soon as this is complete, as soon as the last soul that God from eternity past intended to save is saved by God's grace, Christ comes. Our Savior is one who's coming soon. And when He comes, my goodness, God's people better be ready. And then number 22. We're told in Revelation 22, verse 4, they will see His face. Christ is the one that God's people will see face to face. Now that only excites you if you're excited and your love for every other picture of Jesus that comes before it is real and genuine. Why else do you have any interest in standing face to face before Jesus if you don't really love what you can see of Jesus now? Because in this Revelation 22 vision, we shall see Christ more clearly than ever. You think you know about Jesus now? You think you've got Jesus to some degree figured out now? In that moment, the eyes of faith, the eyes will see clearly, pure eyes, your ocular eyes will see clearly Christ in His glory. A sight far sweeter than anything you could see here. Everything here that hinders you from seeing Him clearly will be taken away. It's just you and the beauty of Christ. That is merely 22 visions where Jesus says, I am. This is here, see me. Churches, seven churches, representative of every church in every age, you need every one of these visions of me. Each one is a means of grace for some struggle in your life, some struggle to drift, to compromise, to, 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 to turn away from the Lord. Every vision here you need, church, to walk faithfully with Jesus and to finish well. The question we have as we close out this study, have you seen Him? Or are you beholding a lesser Christ? Are you beholding a Christ that is other than what He's revealed here? What you need? If that's the case, Jesus' messages to the seven churches is the message for you and I. What did He say to every one of those seven churches in which He found fault? Therefore, <coughs> repent. Repent of your lesser view of Christ. Repent of your indifference toward Christ. Repent if you have no love for Christ and return. Return to your king. Not to religion, not to morality, not to good. Return to this one, to your king. Repent and return. That's our great need. To know Christ. To live upon these truths day after day after day. Don't throw away the book of Revelation. Disagree with me all you want. I don't care. But look at Jesus over and over and over again. He is what this is about. He is our great need. He is our all.